Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. Stephen here. Really happy to welcome to the tent today Bishop Guli Francis de Cani. Bishop Guli began her life in Iran, but she and her family had to flee in the 70s when the Iranian Revolution overtook her family and her brother was killed. Guli and her parents ended up in England and eventually Guli became a bishop in the Anglican Church. This is a story which we go into during the interview, so you'll hear it there. The reason why Guli ended up on my radar was that she is also the first bishop for housing in the history of the Church of England. As some of you listeners will know, I was on a housing commission started by the Archbishop of Canterbury, deliberately designed to look at the housing crisis in the country. And one of our recommendations was the appointment of this bishop. So we were very excited to hear that it was Bishop Gooley who got the position. I had a wonderful time meeting her, and I know that you will enjoy this conversation as well. So I'm kind of in transition, really. I'm still I'm still Bishop of Loughborough, for another few weeks um okay. and then uh yeah and then i become bishop of chelmsford but i'm not actually moving uh i'm not moving to chelmsford until the summer because i have children who who need to finish their school year okay um so we won't be moving until the summer but i'll start in post after easter right okay because mm-hmm. I, I used to work in chelmsford i used to i was a uh, i used to work for st melitis college yes and so we were in chelmsford a, a lot so I, I have some connections to the place, but uh... yeah, yeah, that's well, I, I, I thought you were, are you not still at St. Melitus? No, I left about four years ago, five years ago. Okay. So where are you now? Well, now I've gone freelance. So I was at St. Melitus for a while and then I, uh, I decided that I, I, I went on, I started this thing called tent theology, which is like yeah. my own independent way of bringing Uh, theology education to the church rather than expecting churches to send people to us right and so i um i I act as a i help set up theological spaces inside churches and worshiping communities and so before lockdown i was like a resident theologian that i would go live with a church for a weekend or a week and i would run programs and sessions for everyone and then uh, but after lockdown it's become more online but i still do quite a lot of the churches will hire me to be almost like a consultant for them. And it's very fun. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it's like a theology course that you don't have to write any essays or get a degree. <laughs> yeah. Pop-up theology. Exactly. That's why we call it tent theology because it's yeah, easy yeah. to move yeah. around, you know. Fantastic. And well, I, I wish, you know, if we had, if we had more time, I'd, I'd be very interested in asking you all kinds of things about St. Melitus and whatnot, because I'm going to have to become more involved. Um, but oh. probably now I don't want to distract you from. from oh, the stuff no, yeah, exactly. But one day I'm very happy. I mean, I, like I said, I'm four or five years out of them. It was a very happy. I mean, I love the place. I, I did love the people there too. I didn't leave under a cloud or anything. I just, mm-hmm. I just was less uh, myself personally was less interested in ordination training mm-hmm. and more interested in finding ways to get theology to people who weren't necessarily training for some sort of ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, to do that, I basically had to to go freelance. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but yeah. I, I do support St. Melitus and the, the people there. So. Great. Good. Yeah, good. good. It's, it's great. Great to meet you. And, and is it is it an American accent I hear? Or? Well, no, I'm Canadian. Actually, Canadian. Julie, this will be something we can talk about is is being foreigners living in England and yes. uh, finding our way here. I moved to England 24 years ago from Canada. Mm. And, uh, uh, but I've been here ever since. And um, yeah, so, but, but my main thing is that I'm also, a, my, my main theological interest is I'm a political theologian who looks at national identity and nationalisms, mm. especially Christian nationalism. So um, that's where this podcast has started really. It right. was people were distressed by the what they're seeing in America, mm-hmm. and um, because my whole work is in 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 critiques of patriotism and Christian nationalism, I was getting a lot of emails from people and and uh, like asking what I thought about what was happening with the Trump and the, all that, and so I um, started my podcast as a way to start answering everybody's questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're really highly interested in 
uh, what, what we that, our tagline for this podcast is renewing the social and Christian uh, political imagination. Right. And so we, we're with a lot of people who are aware that the wheels have come off some of the ways that Christians do politics or imagine themselves politically in this world. Yeah. And they sort of despair of what else could happen. So I'm keen to say there's other ways of acting. You don't have to be a, a culture warrior nationalist. You don't have to be a theocrat. You can actually do this. You, we can live in, in ways with, peacefully with each other without having to, to just become these kind of angry, shouting Christians, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's part of what we're doing here. And then mm-hmm. a lot of that means reimagining our own identities to our home nations and things. So yeah. I feel like your experience is something that I'd love for my audience to hear and to listen to as well. But I'd love to begin even just with talking a little bit about perhaps the social and political imagination that you were born into. What kind of world, before we get to where you are now, what kind of world did you grow, were you born into? Ah, okay. Um, Well, a very different one (laughs) from where I find myself now. Um, So I was born and grew up in Iran. of, uh, well, kind of mixed heritage background, but more Iranian than British, really. Okay. Um, So my father was a convert from Islam, an Iranian convert from Islam. Um, And he was, by the time I was born, he was already bishop of the very small Anglican uh, community in Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother was the daughter and indeed the granddaughter of British missionaries, uh, CMS missionaries in Iran. Okay. She was born in Iran herself, um, as in as was her mother. Um, uh, so she grew up there, and apart from three or four years of schooling in England, yeah. she spent the rest of her life in Iran and, um, uh, you know, felt very Persian, really. She, she loved the country. It was her home. She spoke the language. Uh, and so on Um, and they've both died now both my parents have died but I grew up in this odd uh, context between and betwixt two worlds really right of um, Christianity at home and in the church uh, and Islam in wider society and at school you know I was the only Christian in an otherwise entirely Muslim school British influence particularly through the missionaries Um, who were very much present and active in the church while I was growing up. Um, And obviously English and Persian. So I grew up bilingually, um, spoke both at home, had my education in Persian um, until, and that that was, you know, that was looking back on it, it was the most peculiar uh, upbringing. But it was kind of all I knew. It was my normal, as it were. Did you you self-identify? I mean, if you're in an Anglican church with an Anglican identity was the idea that that you were some sort of english outpost in iran or were you were you brought up to think that you were you were being iranian in a different way i mean what was the what was the attitude there was it like we're we're a minority in a in a sea of muslims or is it we are native christians in our own country what was the attitude there that's a really interesting question, and it kind of uh, hits at the heart of my fascination with identity now mm. in my adult life. I mean, I left Iran when I was 13, 14, so uh, all my reflections are ones that that are looking backwards, as it were. Um, I wasn't conscious of these things while I was there, um, but the I was raised very much to think of myself as a Persian Anglican. Um, But it was within the context of a church that was seeking to identify itself as both Persian and Christian in a culture where that wasn't easy to do, because the the social environment that we were in was one in which in order to be Iranian, in order to be Persian, you are Muslim. That's just it's a a given. It goes without saying. And therefore, to not be Muslim and actually specifically Shia Muslim, raised questions about our identity, um, Mm. both as a church community and actually, I think, for us as as individuals as well. So I grew up always being on the boundaries, just not quite fitting in 
yeah. um, because we were regarded as foreigners because the, the church the church had its roots in the missionary movement. And although mm. through my father and others, uh, it was developing an indigenous leadership and really seeking to define its identity as Iranian, its roots were in the missionary movement. And still today, the remnant that remain are regarded as a kind of arm of Western imperialism. Right. And uh, yeah, we, we were regarded as foreign, really, if I'm honest. So I think I grew up subconsciously knowing that always and then came to this country where, again, obviously I was foreign. Mm. Um, and so I've all and yet probably was able to assimilate more easily than some might because of my experiences. Uh, but again, found myself on the edges, on, on mm. the kind of boundaries. And so uh, both through the experience of the church community I was part of and my own personally, my fascination has been how to how to um, to not ha how that boundary space doesn't need to become a negative space, how it can be turned into something positive and and rich and, um, and beautiful. Well, I mean, my, my story is that I, I was a voluntary immigrant to the United Kingdom from Canada, mm. but that wasn't your story. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's lovely to hear that people come voluntarily here. That's wonderful. Yeah. No, I found myself here unexpectedly. So um, when the revolution happened in Iran, the Islamic revolution, uh, which kind of, well, its roots go way back, but it it became apparent probably the summer of 1978 and then through to the end of 1979 and into 1980, um, uh, this tiny indigenous church that was seeking to define its identity as Christian was hit very hard mm. because for the um, fundamentalists groups who um, had their opportunity as it were through the revolution who they'd been waiting for their opportunity really to mm. find a way of, of destroying the church um, and, and that was their opportunity. So the church came under this quite significant attack, uh, both as a community. So institutions were confiscated or closed down or taken over. Um, uh, offices were raided. Our home was raided. The bishop's house was raided. Um, financial assets were frozen and so on. Uh, and meanwhile, my father also as the bishop and as someone who retained his Muslim name, he was called Hassan, um, you know, came under particular attack and yeah. so he was imprisoned briefly um uh, as i say our house was raided uh, there was an attempt on his life in which my mother was injured um but they both survived it uh, and then for us uh, events culminated when my brother who was 24 uh, was killed his car was ambushed on his way back from work um my father was out of the country at the time for meetings in the Middle East where he also had responsibilities. He was um, presiding bishop of uh, the province of Jerusalem in the Middle East at the time, so he traveled a lot. Um, and while he was out, uh, the situation in Iran had become much worse. Uh, it was the time when the American hostages were taken um, and any semblance of law and order collapsed. And so he was advised not to come back just yet. And people said, you know, if you if you come back now, you'll simply be arrested and executed as was happening to many others in the country at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember daily we would see horrific photographs in newspapers of the previous day's executions. Um, so my my mother, who had travelled abroad with him for those meetings, came back without him. Um, and we had been there several months wondering when this situation would end. You know, no commentators thought that the revolution would really take hold in the way that it ended up doing. Um, so she came back in time for Christmas 1979. Uh, and by the spring of 1980, I think, you know, they were really beginning to question uh, how they could continue living like this. And that's when my brother was killed. Um, and he was assassinated, really. Um, I mean, no one was ever brought to justice, but mm. he was assassinated. Uh, he became a scapegoat, I guess, as a means possibly of getting at my father. Uh, possibly they thought my dad would come back for the funeral. We don't really know. Um, anyway, at that point, we realized that my father couldn't come back. So uh, my sister and I left with my mum and came to England, all of us thinking that we'd be back within a few months, you know, a year at the most. Uh, and of course, that 
was not to be. And so um, originally we were given refugee status uh, and eventually uh, British, British citizenship. Uh, and yeah, 40, 40 years later, I'm still here. How was the, I mean, what was the sort of welcome that you, you had or didn't have as a refugee? When you when you showed up, did you find anybody with were they aware of what was going on in Iran? Were they suspicious of you or what? Because today refugee has such a uh, it's a lightning rod, isn't it, for so much uh, attention? What was it like in the seventies or the early eighties to be a refugee? Well, Stephen, I I always um, caveat when I say I arrived as a refugee. Um, you know, I had a much softer landing. We had a much okay. softer landing than what we think of as refugees having now. Yeah. Um, partly because I think, you know, 40 years on, there is a great deal more suspicion. There are many more refugees and therefore there's much more defensiveness and fear and the, the um, you know, the circumstances are much, much more difficult uh, for many people. Mm. And also I did have some family here. So my, um, one of my mother's sisters was living in England and also her mother was still alive and ha had retired to England. Um, mm. So we had some uh, family and also my father, because he was Bishop an Anglican Bishop, obviously we had church connections. Uh, so initially we stayed with family and then eventually the church structures kicked in uh, to provide a solution. It, I have to say it took quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And I remember my father talking about feeling that he was an embarrassment, that the church of England didn't really know what to do with him at the time. And there was quite a lot of toing and froing between CMS who um, had had missionaries in Iran, church yeah. missionaries, and the Anglican Church to try and find a solution to this, uh, you know, situation that they'd never encountered before, where they had a bishop who was saying, look, I have my own diocese, I have responsibilities there, yeah. um, but I need a stipend and I need somewhere to live. So it took quite a while for things to kick in. Yeah. But, um, you know, we were never destitute, and people were incredibly generous, uh, and kind of helped my parents rebuild their lives, really. And, uh, and I then finished my schooling here and so on. And my parents, meanwhile, became, well, they, they you know, they have been so influential on my life in so many ways. Um, and I, I observed them in the coming years, as it were, come to terms with their lives having been turned upside down and with the loss of their son and with the apparent disintegration of everything that they'd worked for. Yeah. Uh, and they did it with so much grace and, um, uh, you know, wisdom and, uh, you know, the whole theme of forgiveness became, again, another one that I've been fascinated by ever since, because they, they seemed to be able to hold the line between embracing forgiveness on one hand, but always uh, wanting to speak out about the injustices that the church had experienced and, um, you know, calling that out, as it were. So, yeah, that, that was the kind of start of my life here in England. What, what about your relationship to the church? What was happening to, to you and your, I mean, you saw the church being such a, a key uh, part of your father's identity and your mother's story. What about you? What was happening to you in your church journey at this time? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I always say that I think I took... Um, Christian faith and probably even something of Anglican identity um, in with my mother's milk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think by that I mean that uh, even, even in my kind of later teenage and perhaps early 20s um, years, I kind of had some half-hearted attempts to shed it all and walk away from it. And right through the angry phase and all of that but I never yeah. really managed it. it it was too um too strongly lodged in me it's it's just a part of my identity in a way and and I guess all my experiences were bound to either have that effect or turn me completely off um and and so I've never really fully walked away from it but that doesn't mean that I don't have a um 
well, I, I hesitate to say it, but I think almost a love-hate relationship. Oh, you could say more than that if you wanted <laughs> on this well, podcast. I know, I know I can't see you, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, where was where was the love and where was where was the hate? We, we I can guarantee you that pretty much everybody who listens to this podcast will probably say something similar about their relationship to Christianity. So mm -hmm. what, what there is lots to love. What did you love about? Well, I think I think my love hate is more to do with the church as an organization. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of my faith, I think I have known and discovered the risks attached to faith which I think is sometimes lost on us here in the west you know faith mm. doesn't feel like a risky thing here no um, and, and I know from my own personal experience how risky it is uh, and therefore how costly it can be but I've also learned through my own experience um how enriching it is when we're going through the most difficult and traumatic experiences. So there's the paradox there of it. It can take us to the brink of danger and costliness, um, but at the same time, it, it uh, helps us journey through those yeah. dark times. So, so that's the kind of paradoxical element of, of faith itself, if you like, and, and Christianity. The church is another whole matter, isn't it? And yeah. um, I, I think, you know, when I was... When I was growing up in my 20s, the Church of England, certainly in my early 20s, didn't even ordain women at that point. So um, I think there's a whole thing about how, again, this is the paradox, how um, Christianity and the church in particular, the institution of the church, has down the years both empowered women, faith empowers us, gives us confidence and so on, but at the same time, uh, you know, sought to put us down, as it were. Um, and in, in some ways, in some ways, still does. We still legislate uh, to to allow for um, for women's ministry to to not be accepted. Um, and so, I, I can still remember the night before I was ordained, having an almost um, well, almost a crisis about what on earth I was doing, aligning myself with this institution that effectively treated women as as second class citizens and aligned itself against you. Exactly. Yeah. But I neither could in the end for me, it was either you've got to walk away from this completely or you throw yourself in with it and try and um, be a I, I hesitate to say work for change because that sounds very grand, but just be a presence um, in, in my own small way and in the bits of it that I can influence uh, to try and try and bring about some kind of change and that's what I opted for in the end and again that's been at times costly and frustrating and at times wonderful and joyful I mean do you know do you know who do you know Daphne Hampson by any chance I don't I know how da Daphne Hampson's work but I've never yeah. met so she was I mean I'm not going to say anything bad about her she was absolutely brilliant I, that's why I don't mind saying her name because she was uh, a tutor of mine at university and she's a Kierkegaard scholar and she's absolutely yeah. brilliant but she will write about like her not being it was it was her decision to uh, to, to stop being a christian was connected to her inability to become ordained mm -hmm. into the church of england like so for her it was it's so interesting like you she she stopped being a christian mm -hmm. and you went into it <laughs> this is it's yeah. a real dividing yeah. point isn't it absolutely and i and i have quite a lot of sympathy for yeah. her yeah, but, no, it's a very honest decision she made. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. Um, and and so I can understand it, and I I you know um, don't want to kind of make any judgmental comments about it. For for me, it was it, it yeah, it was a case of that the essence of the Christian faith um, kind of supersedes all of these divisions, mm. um, and actually, I don't think even by turning our back on the church or on Christianity, we get away from these divisions which exist in society anyway. Um, so faith is God-given, but it's, it, it's, it, it resides within institutions which are human institutions and therefore full of fragility and frailty. And, uh, and I know, you know, Daphne Hampson and, and others, their arguments are that it is just too, the institution is too intrinsically yeah. patriarchal and it can never, ever change. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, they may be right. I, I would say that I think I have seen some change over the years. Um, and I hope still to see more, and there will be change well beyond our lifetime. It, it is very, very slow in the church, and that is a cause of, of both pain and frustration and continues to be so. Um, yeah. And not just gender, you know, all kinds of other divisions as well. I mean, we see it ar around race and ethnicity. We see it around sexuality and um, and so on. Uh, and I, what is it that makes us so, so resistant and so fearful? I don't know. That's an interesting. How, I mean, how much? Uh, so you, like, uh, uh, my American listeners might not realize that bishops wear purple, um, and if you walk down the street, it's very obvious when you, if you know what to look for, you can tell a bishop just by looking at them. Uh, you, you know, I've seen pictures of you. You wear purple, and you you have a cross sometimes that you wear. Like you're very obviously a a, a public representative of the Church of England in a very public way. Mm -hmm. Um, how how much do you balance kind of do, do you apologize for the church do you suffer for the church do you see yourself as a as an agent of change within it like what happens when people start to attack the church of england and they see you as the public representation of it where where do you go with that do you do you agree with the critics or do you try and defend what you're doing yeah, I, I try not to defend because right. I think defensiveness is never an attractive or a or a helpful um, mm. quality. Uh, and I think given our our past record in a number of areas, to an extent, we have to just soak up what we hear. Uh, so right. Sometimes it's a bit like being a sponge. I, I do think sometimes also that the church is is misrepresented and misunderstood right and the church you know what do we mean by the church <laughs> things by it don't they yeah. and, and i think in 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 popular in the popular imagination the church is the headlines it's 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 the what what the media says it's it's the big stories yeah um, and and what i try i think to explain to people is is that actually the real church is the grassroots, it's yeah. parishes, it's on the ground, and a phenomenal yeah. amount of faithful, um, good work goes on. And so people who come into contact with that at a local level, I think, have a different perception of yeah. the church than those yeah. awful headlines about sexual abuse or, you know, the, the, the things that where we're seen to be against, you know, we're always... Yeah fighting or against yeah, those yeah. are the things that grab the headlines but that's not really that's not really what the church is and and for me as a as a mm. bishop now i think there is a challenge about how to you know i can't avoid the public square the public space uh and so yeah how can i be both a faithful servant of the church without losing a critical edge i think we do have to remain self-critical and we have to hear how other people perceive us it's you know, there's no good just screaming and shouting louder in opposition. We've, no. we've, got to, uh, we've got to listen carefully to how people perceive us and be willing to be self-critical, embrace change where necessary without losing our, our identity and the essence of what we are. And there is a, a kind of an element where all eyes are going to be on you anyway. Like you, I think you're, you, you've got a house, uh, you've got a seat in the House of Lords. Is that right? You're about to... Um, I, I don't at the minute, but I, okay. I I will do from the summer sometime, I think. But yeah. there's just a sense that like eyes are going to be on you anyway. So how are you going to direct their gaze? Like what what you get to you get to turn people's attention to things like you've just described, like the faithful, the faithfulness of the local church. You get to kind of direct people's attention to, to different things, I suppose. If that mm. gets to be part of what you do. And I mean, I, I've noticed that if I do a bit of research, on you like there's two obvious things there's your uh, being advisor to women's ministry and then there's your work with refugees in the european refugee situation tell me about those those two aspects of your your work well i i was in this is going back a few years when i used to work in a different diocese as a priest in, mm. in a diocese i was um advisor for women's ministry there uh, although i've i you know i've retained an uh, an interest in, in supporting and and i guess mentoring and being alongside uh women in the church both lay and ordained but yeah. 
particularly those who who um, are exploring ordination or who are ordained. Um, and yeah, the refugee work, uh, you know, I'm involved in an organization called Churches Commission for Migrants in Europe. I mean, for obvious reasons, I suppose I'm, I'm interested in that whole area uh, and in what part the church can play. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you'll have picked up from my story that the theme of um, justice is quite an important one. I do, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about the, the fact that our faith, which we absolutely share in, in how we talk about the gospel and the good news of Jesus and, you know, the, the, the verbal sharing, as it were, of our mm -hmm. faith, has to go hand in hand with practical uh, demonstration. Um, and for Christians, that means, for me, that means being at the heart of the things that matter in mm. the lives of people in our world, uh, and particularly those who are most marginalised and have least amounts of power and least amount of say over what happens to them. Yeah. Uh, and that stretches from everything through concerns about refugees to people who are homeless through to issues around the environment. Um, you know, we have to be involved in those things. I know we, we constantly get criticised in England, uh, particularly as bishops for, you know, people say you should keep your nose out of politics and so on. Um, I agree. I don't think it's helpful to become too involved in party politics. Mm. Uh, but the Jesus that I see in the Gospels was absolutely engaged in politics with a small p um, in the sense that he was interested in every aspect of people's lives. Uh, and I think we have to be, too, to be an expression of God's love now in this place, uh, just as much as showing concern for what is yet to come, as it were. You know, our, our, mm. our role is to try and create a little bit of heaven here mm. and now. If we don't do that, I think we're, we're denying a whole part of our, of our faith, in a sense. That, that's how I make sense of it. And we do, we, we all do that in different ways. As a bishop, I have the opportunity uh, to, to, to be heard and to speak in spaces that perhaps I wouldn't otherwise. And from the get-go, my desire has been to use that uh, to good effect as much as possible. Um, but yeah, we're very open to criticism. We, we're, it, we're very easy to kind of be knocked off our perches. And of course, social media makes that an even more difficult space to to be involved in there are some things where it's almost impossible to talk about publicly just because the the space isn't the public isn't able to talk about some of these things i mean what, what one of the things that we're uh, the reason you and i are even have met in the first place is because of the housing crisis mm. and the housing issue which is where i suspect I suspect you might get asked this. So you've just been appointed uh, the Bishop for Housing, the first ever Bishop for Housing mm. in this country. And I get to ask you the question in a not at all a hostile way, and you can practice on me. If, <laughs> if a hostile person said, what does a bishop have to, what does somebody who lives in a palace has to say about housing, right? Mm. What does the Church of England, why, did, why, why are you getting involved in housing? What, what, would you, what do you say to people like that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, app, the, just, the first thing I would say briefly is I, I do not live in a palace. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just put that one straight first. Exactly. But it, nonetheless, it's a fair point. Um, well, I mean, I am just very unexpectedly finding myself in this role. And I am really excited by it and yeah. about the, the opportunities that it holds. Um, so it, it comes out of the work of a commission that was set up by the Archbishop of Canterbury a couple of years ago to look into uh, what is increasingly being talked about as the housing crisis in this country, um, where in the region of 8 million people are living either in unaffordable or substandard accommodation uh, within uh, in circumstances which you know most of us would find simply unacceptable and, yeah. and intolerable. Uh, and the commission has just produced a report um, uh, and you had a significant part to play in the theology underlying that report, uh, along with uh, Bishop Graham Tomlin, Bishop mm -hmm. of Kensington, uh, and have done some absolutely first rate theological thinking to underpin the work of the commission. 
Um, but the Commission has not just recognised the problem, it's also set out a vision for how things could be different mm. uh, regarding housing in this country. Um, and then it's also um, presented some recommendations uh, for the government and for all kinds of other properties, uh, sorry, for all kind of other players in the world of housing, as it were, developers, landowners, uh, and so on. Lots of stakeholders, um, yeah. All the stakeholders, that's right, yeah. But the report also includes some recommendations for the church. Um, and one of those was to appoint a bishop for housing. Mm. Uh, and the purpose of that bishop, which, which is me, is to um, continue the work of the commission and to try and work with a team of advisors and a small executive group as well, executive team, uh, to ensure that the recommendations, which are currently mainly aspirational, are translated into real change and action. Um, and hmm. I think the reason why I feel it's so important to be involved in this um, is that we have an opportunity here as the church uh, to demonstrate how we can be part of creating change in wider society. Yeah. But the only way we're going to be able to do that is by leading from the front and demonstrating that we're willing to use some of our own land and some of our own money and resources and thinking uh, to affecting change as well. And so it feels like we're on a um, on a, a bit of a kind of, uh, you know, precipice that we will absolutely lose our credibility if we <laughs> fail to do that. Yeah. But we have a massive opportunity if we choose to take it. Of course, it's never straightforward in the Church of England because we're, we're not one body. We're 42 different yeah. dioceses. And the church commissioners are, you know, they they are, are separate again. And some land is owned by church commissioners, some is owned by dioceses, some is owned by parishes. So it's a very, very complex thing. Yeah. Um, but we do now have an opportunity, uh, and I intend to do my absolute best to try and be a part of steering this work to see some real change. Uh, and obviously, I will speak to these issues in the House of Lords when I'm there as well. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the world, as it were, is now watching us. <laughs> and yeah. many people are excited by this. Uh, but yeah, we, we have, we, we can risk losing credibility, or we can, we can show how in partnership with others, we can be a really valuable um, uh, part of, of, of the change. I do think it's, you described how complex it can be. And just to put things in perspective, like I think a lot of outsiders might think that the Church of England is a church that's propped up by the state of England. Mm. When the reality is the Church of England predates the nation of England, like it existed before England was a country. <laughs> and some of the things that you're describing, some of the institutions and the land and the agreements of land management, some of those date back to before England existed as a country. Mm. And so we are, when we talk about an ancient and complicated system that we're trying to, to unpick or use in a different way, like th that's the kinds of things that we're doing with institutional change here is we're, we're going back very far sometimes. Yeah, it is. You're yeah. absolutely right. It's very, very complex and um, tied up in, in kind of ancient history, as it were. And it's never as straightforward as, um, as it may look. No, and a lot of the land that and the buildings that the church is, is responsible for itself is part of the fabric of English heritage, right? It, it, how do you juggle this, uh, uh, the, the difference between being a minister of the gospel and also being in some ways a a caretaker of English cultural heritage. <laughs> do you ever know? To, do you ever feel that that conflict between those two roles? Uh, probably, if I sat and thought about it too hard, I would. I mean, I think another misconception. Before um, trying to answer your question a bit more, another misconception is that that the the cultural heritage, as it were, the buildings and okay. so on, are maintained by the state. That somehow we get, you know, we get money. From the state and of course 
we don't we don't get any money at all at all yeah and and we have these wonderful and beautiful buildings but they are very cumbersome as well and in some cases in some communities they become almost like a noose around around our necks as it were but we've got them and they uh, in many cases have been places of worship for hundreds of years Um, people have faithfully looked after them and worshipped in them and they are uh, they belong to the community you know in in small English villages even people who would never dream of going to church on a Sunday or going to worship you know many of them have a sense of affinity with the building it it belongs to their community and they would be appalled at the thought of it um, being taken away Uh, we're not free to just sell them or knock them down it's it's incredibly complicated and difficult to either close or or sell a church building it's not a straightforward thing at all yeah and then there's the whole question of is, is it right to do that we're looking very much at the minute in the church of england at um finding ways of thinking more broadly about how to use our buildings well uh, so that they are places of worship absolutely still but that they're also spaces that the community community can use more widely Uh, and this uh, approach a kind of multi multi multi-use buildings as it were and and getting the community more widely involved in decisions about the building and so on um, is something that we're wanting to look at Um, interestingly I mean during this pandemic period obviously for for much of the time churches have been closed I suspect that there will be some churches that won't ever open again. Um, but, you know, I what would what would this country look like mm. if we said our church buildings don't matter? They're now too cumbersome. Let's just leave them to go to rack and ruin because selling and and knocking down isn't that easy. So yeah. let's just leave them. Yeah. We'd end with relics around the country, wouldn't we? Of yeah old uh, dilapidated buildings and my worry would be that that would become a a physical uh, expression of what the church itself has become yeah um so I, I i want to be kind of careful about buildings to say they're not the church isn't the buildings and yet they are an important part of our history and of who we are and of how we worship yeah. and i think we have missed them for all that that online worship has, has been very effective for many um, they're the place where we receive the sacraments. So, yeah, again, it's for, for me, any anything to do with faith and Christianity and probably life in general, uh, in the end, you have to hold in, par- you know, you have to hold paradoxes. And there are never straightforward answers. And so we kind of struggle to discern the wisest path through these very, very complex um, situations in a society yeah. that is clamoring for straightforward black and white answers. I know. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your worry in terms of dilapidation and, and things gone to rack and ruin. What, what about your vision? What, what would you like to see happen? Or what, do you, what, what good things looming on the horizon can you see? I'm, I'm really hopeful, actually. Uh, you, may not, you, may not, you may not have picked that up. I am really hopeful because um, um, I you know, for me, the future of the Church of England, or indeed any church anywhere, is not in our hands, it's in God's hands. And frankly, the fact that we're still here is, yeah. is evidence of that, because we we make a good mess of it ourselves, don't we? And uh, and somehow we kind of find our way through. And I'm, I'm really influenced by my early experiences of being part of the persecuted church, which had its identity and all its external trappings stripped away, literally yeah. stripped away. Um, and to all intent and purposes, the, the Anglican Church in Iran was an experiment that you might say failed. Um, but it's still there. You know, there are still faithful people there serving. And who knows what the future holds, you know, in God's timing and in and in God's vision. Um, and I, I would like to see the Church of England... Um, less anxious mm-hmm. uh, about what have become our trappings not to not care for them as i've just said about the buildings yeah. you know, we, we've we've been entrusted with things and it's our duty to to care for them but to sit light to them yes and to remember that in the end 
it's not about this. We, we are no longer central to society in the way we used to be. Yeah. And I, I sometimes worry that we're, we're so anxious to try and get back to that place of influence instead of being able to sit light and embrace our place on the margins a little bit more. And I've, I've talked already about how boundaries, I think, can be rich places. And if we could embrace that place, maybe we would hear a little bit more clearly God's voice leading us to a, a new way of being church. But we've got to get through the pain threshold first. And I think we're right in the middle of that pain threshold of the minute. Yeah. You know, something new will emerge. And the task of our generation is to, to somehow remain faithful through this transition, through this liminal period, and have the courage to allow some things to die in order for new things to emerge. Uh, but I don't quite yeah. know how we do it. <laughs> I've just got this vision that that's what we need to do. But quite how we do it? Well, sometimes these things aren't about the actual how. It's more about your, our orientation towards something. Like you said, how lightly we hold it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we have an app, a step-by-step -step guide to what to do next. It's more that we have an attitude towards this thing. Mm. Uh, one, of the, one of the issues that arose when, on the commission when we were talking about land and land use, and one of the questions that came up very early was, we all talk about owning land, but can anyone really own land? Mm. I mean, I know legally on a piece of paper, you can say that so-and-so owns this land, but let's be honest, we're going to die and that land is still going to be there. Mm. <laughs> Where nobody really owns anything. We just may be taking care of it for the next generation, right? Yeah. And there could be a sense that as you were talking about the church reimagining itself, less as owning all this land and more as temporarily taking care of it for the next group who's coming along. Mm. And so we do live in that liminal space, as you said, like we, we're not sort of settled and here, here to stay forever and ever. Amen. We're just passing through mm. along with everyone else. And, and how are we going to leave behind the land that we've been entrusted with just for our, for our lifetime, you know? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, again, again, for me, it's paradoxical um, because I absolutely agree with what you say. And yet uh, land and place and home and all those things do kind of really matter, don't they? They give us our identity. I know when we, yeah. when we found ourselves in England, um, I think one of the hardest things for my father, I can remember him talking, and I, I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but they had um, a property in Iran that was going to always be their retirement uh, home. Uh, and that was one of the properties that was confiscated mm -hmm. at the time of the revolution and has, you know, st still is. Mm -hmm. I think my father found it really painful. And I think right until very near the end, he held out hope that one day he would get this property back. Right. And, and when I think about it, you know, he, he no longer needed that property. Um, he'd lost so much um, as a result of the revolution and, and the kind of costliness of faith. And so I think it was something about a violation of who he was to have this little bit of land and his home forcibly taken from him. So it isn't it, it. The paradox is we need to sit light to these things but when they're, when they're forcibly removed or, or when they're not there in the way that justly they should be it matters somehow yeah, yeah. um so so yeah it's um it, it's paradoxical but i but i absolutely agree with you that that the idea of grasping and hanging on to the things that were once significant or important the letting go of those things is is absolutely our way into the future um it, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like what i say about sacrifice you know sacrifice is a central theme in in christian tradition um, and we each need to embrace it in our own lives but as soon as as soon as it's imposed on you it stops being sacrifice it becomes abuse yeah exactly um, so yeah, yeah it, it's the kind of how do we sit uh, and alongside our physical belongings and possessions and uh, and houses and so on you know they they matter to us we look after them they give us identity but actually mm. if they're gone there are more important things undergoing yeah. them and and also I, I just was thinking you're telling your story about your father like for him to willingly give his land 
to someone is ultimate like it's a lovely act of generosity mm -hmm. but for him to have his land taken from him is an ultimate tragedy and mm -hmm. it's an evil that's been done right mm -hmm. to your family and mm -hmm. isn't it interesting like the, the end result is he doesn't have his land but one of those things would have been good and the other thing was evil yeah it's the occasion it's the mm -hmm. occasion for how the land is used that's important not not actually how it's used yeah, it's and why if, it's being used and, and who's forcing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but of course, ultimately, even out of the evil, depending on how we respond to it, right, that good can come. And yeah. and that surely, surely the ultimate example is the cross. So uh, uh, you know the, the the ultimate evil yeah. was done, and yet it it became it became the ultimate good. Well, this is why I don't agree with my friend, Professor Hampson. I don't think that you can look at a, a country or a church and say it is beyond redemption. Mm. It is done. We cannot no longer be redeemed in this. I, I, don't, I don't think we can actually say that mm. because we can always say <laughs> there's a redemption beyond death. Yeah. Even, even the ultimate uh, destruction of, of of the cross still has some hope at the other end of it, right? Yeah. Guli Francis Dakani, thank you so much for joining us at the tent. I really enjoyed talking with you. Please, can you, uh, is there anywhere that listeners could go if they wanted to find out more about, about your role as a Bishop of Housing or more about you? What's the best place people could go to find out more? Gosh, yeah, well, there is a website, but I'm afraid I can't tell you what it is now. You probably know it. I'll, I'll find it. <laughs> yeah. I will go do the work. I'll, I'll, I'll put some links up in the show notes. Yeah, there is a website to the um, commission, you know, to the yes. work of the commission. And I, I you know, I, I guess there'll be a certain amount of information about my role involved Absolutely. in that as well. So, yeah. yeah, perhaps you could, um, perhaps you could add in that link. We will. We will. Thank you for your time. I, I really uh, am honored that you spent all this time with me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. I'm, I'm, you know, I've really enjoyed it. It's been very engaging talking to you, and I, I really hope that our paths will cross again at some point in the future. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us, and God bless everyone.